Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. Uh, you know me, the guy who talks on the mic about things, sometimes rants, frequently talks about global affairs, whatever else, and uh, I hope your day is going well. It is Friday. It sucks. Now, every time I say it's Friday, I get the Rebecca Black song stuck in my head, and it kind of drives me a little bit crazy, but it's so damn catchy, and what, it's, oh god, it's probably like 10 years old now. I'm a dinosaur. But anyways, uh, hopefully the sound is okay today. I'm in a new location again, a little background noise outside and in the house, so hopefully you can hear all well. The microphone sometimes is too good at picking things up, but we shall see. So I want to talk about a rebellion attempt in Peru, a coup plot in Germany, and Brittany Grimer and uh, Kirsten Cinema. But first, before we do that, I wanted to start by saying that people think another COVID surge is coming just in time for the holidays. That's a trend that we've been seeing for a while now, and I'm honestly kind of tired of it. It's like every time the holidays come around, of course, people are moving, going to see each other, blah, blah, blah. And of course, right around that time, it's like, okay, actually, you should probably be cautious because you're going to get sick. Whatever. So the, the Atlantic has a pretty fitting article. It's called Beginning to Look a Lot Like Another COVID Surge. <sighs> and the article reads, in quotes here, Here we go again. For the first time in several months, another wave seems to be on the horizon in the U.S. The past two weeks reported cases, which have increased by 53%. Hospitalizations have risen by 31%. Virus levels in wastewater, which can provide an advanced warning of spread, are following a similar trajectory. So everything's pointing to another wave, right? And luckily, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try to be optimistic, at least in this segment, because the rest I'm not going to be optimistic, but it's good to start off on a good note. Of course, it's the COVID wave is probably going to be less deadly just based on the trends. People do have the vaccine. Immunity is high. I mentioned, you know, it was the World Health Organization said that I think it was like 85 or 90 percent of the world has some sort of interaction with the virus, some sort of immunity. So that's always good. And the problem, though, is that, of course, we have that trifecta going on right now of COVID, the flu, RSV, and booster numbers are low. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, but I don't see people really changing their plans if there's a wave. Uh, people are kind of willing to either take the risk and the people that aren't just stay home. So we'll have to see, but it's not really surprising. It seems like about every time this year we've been seeing a wave and COVID's here to stay, as far as I can tell. So this year won't be any different. Anyways, uh, I also want to talk about Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema. Sorry, before we continue, she—I mean, I was gonna say she's maybe my least favorite senator, but that's not true. Ted Cruz is. <laughs> uh, she's maybe my least favorite Democrat, or I guess now independent. Let me let me backtrack a little bit here and say that apparently she's announced that she is no longer going to caucus with the Democratic Party. She is going to be an independent, and it's—I mean, to be honest, like. I think she's been getting high on her own supply or something because she's made this announcement, but I think most of us have kind of assumed she's been like this for a long time. I think I think in her head, she wants to be kind of like the John McCain maverick, except obviously on the other side, like the person who Republicans can say, oh, we can talk to her, get things done. She's not super divisive. She likes bipartisanship. I think in her eyes, that's what she sees. But what most of us see on the right and the left is someone who is just pretty much backed by corporations making a lot of money and really doesn't seem to stand for anything anymore. That's what I see. I think a lot of Republicans see that. She's really not popular in Arizona with Republicans or Democrats, super popular with corporations. And I think for her being an independent, 
not much is going to change because she's not going to, what, caucus with the Democratic Party. She'll still probably vote the same way. It's not like she's going to become like a far-right Republican out of nowhere. I don't see her being quite the Tulsi Gabbard or something. But it's good for her to kind of be an independent in terms of corporate interests, especially because sometimes she's gotten a lot of um, criticism for some of the some of the donors she has, especially being on the left. But now that she's an independent, it's easier to say, well, I'm actually not a Democrat, and it's easier just to kind of go down that road. So I think it's better for her. She's not some warrior for bipartisanship or anything like that. She's she's just kind of a pain in the ass. Like I've told people, like, and some people think she's good. She kind of keeps Democrats on their toes, kind of checks them. I don't think that's the case. I actually prefer Mansion to Cinema. Like if we were going to talk about the kind of irritants in the in the back of the Democratic Party in the Senate. Now, the one thing I think that is interesting about this, though, is that we have a 51-49 Senate now, right, after Herschel Walker lost to Raphael Warnock. And now if Kirsten Cinema is going to be even more of a wild card than she's been, I bet Democrats are going, God damn it, like, <laughs> we, we thought we had something nice here. But then again, also it means she still doesn't have as much power as she had in this last Senate. But... You know, I, I think everyone's kind of overreacting to this story that she's now an independent. Like, this is someone who's been a pain in the ass for a while, and I don't think that's going to change. She's not a maverick like John McCain. She's really not ideologically that much that much different from a lot of other, like, centrists, but she seems to like the idea of kind of being this uh, shadowy person who you never know what she's going to do. I, I don't know. I, I just don't think this is going to do much to be completely honest. But of course, she also doesn't really have to worry about pissing anyone off, to be completely honest, because we all know that after she leaves the Senate, whether that's in four years or <laughs> or sooner, I, I don't know, we know that she's going to have great jobs being a lobbyist or working for whatever corporation she wants. And, and she's an interesting case because she seemed like kind of an actual like centrist, intelligent liberal at one time. And it seems like she's just kind of become this, this just kind of, I don't, I don't want to say grifter because that's where Tulsi Gabbard belongs, but she's become something that's kind of annoying to me. And there's really not much else I can say about that. It's, it's, it's what she's been. So let's move on though. I wanted to take a little bit, not, not too long, because I want to spend most time on the uh, two international stories here, but I want to talk about Brittany Griner, the WNBA star for a moment. I did an episode a few months ago on her, and I'm not going to go into all the details again, but she was imprisoned in Russia and was finally freed yesterday after what sounded like just a game of chicken in uh, hostage swapping. And she landed, I believe, this morning, so Friday morning in the United States. And, you know, I mean, I read she was just in atrocious labor camps. Sounds like <laughs> they're the type of camps that sound like nothing has really changed since like the 40s since the Stalin era, like you hear reports of like hundreds of women sharing a bathroom, awful facilities. I just can't even, can't even imagine. And, you know, I feel for her. So it's good that she's out. It's good that she's back in the United States. I don't think anyone should have to go through that for a vape pen. Again, I've, like I said earlier on the last time I talked about her, she shouldn't have brought it. She should have known. I would never do that if I'm going to a country that's known for locking people up. Like, Singapore as well. Places like Singapore, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. I would not bring drugs. I'm sorry. Like that just doesn't make sense to me. But anyways, that's a whole other story. She's out. And she was freed in exchange for Victor Bout. I talked about him as well. Notorious Russian arms dealer. 
He's known as the Merchant of Death, Sanctions Buster. There's many names for him. He's done really wide-reaching operations, has extensive clientele, usually bad people. That's the one through line with most of his clientele. And he's really good at passing, bypassing everything involving embargoes. And just to give some examples of his work or his resume, shall we call it, he was arrested in Thailand on terrorism charges. He was accused of uh, intending to smuggle arms to the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, for use against U.S. forces. So that's always good. He was convicted by a jury in a Manhattan federal court because he was looking to kill U.S. citizens, and he was delivering anti-aircraft missiles and providing aid to a terrorist organization. He was also, <laughs> he's also been involved, ironically, well, not ironically, just um, fittingly, in some of the most terrifying and awful conflicts in Africa, such as in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Democratic Republic of the Congo. He also doesn't really have any any semblance of a moral compass because he supplied both sides in the Angolan Civil War, which was disastrous. And so he's, look, it's safe to say this is a bad guy who has a lot of blood on his hands, arguably tens of thousands of people's blood on his hands, indirectly or directly. So not not good. And in my other episode I did on this, I did ponder whether this trade was a good idea, since this guy is just atrocious, like I keep saying. And I still feel strongly that this trade was imperfect. And in a perfect world, this guy would rot in prison. But that being said, Griner is an American, and it's important to get her out. Since it's over, I don't really think it's really worth talking about it anymore, to be honest. Like, I, I know some people are like glad about it. Others are like, well, what about the other people? Or is it worth giving up this guy? From my understanding, Bout is not in good health. He's been in prison for a while. He's probably done with his days of causing terror. I don't. I think his work is over. So, I don't know. It's it's complicated, but this was a good showing of the State Department and other U.S. organizations working to get her out. Right. I know. I know a lot of people on the Twitter mob, a lot of the woke left criticize the slow nature of this deal. LeBron James said, oh, if it was me, she would have been out by now. It's like, I don't think so, man. There's a war going on over there, and tensions are high, and the Russians um, kind of want to play games with us right now. So I don't think it had anything to do with her being a black woman or a gay black woman. I think she got out eventually, and they were doing their best. These things don't happen overnight, and so there's a lot of disingenuous arguments kind of on both sides, but the I, I just know the Twitter left was calling this a racism thing, and it's just not. Look, they got her out. There's other people still over there that haven't got out. I don't think it's anything to do with identity politics, but I'm glad they did it. And the one thing I will say is that Griner's release does put a spotlight on Paul Whelan. He's an American that has been imprisoned in Russia for longer, I think since 2018. He's Canadian-born, but was also a former United States Marine. He was arrested. They were trumped up charges for accusations of spying while he was in Moscow. Maybe he was. It's hard to know, but usually that's not the case. A little birdie tells me, a little hunch tells me it's probably not the case. And this guy's been in a gulag, labor camp, whatever you want to call it, for a while. And he doesn't seem happy. I've seen interviews with him. And, you know, while it's great that Griner is out, I do think it's a bit sad and poor that that Waylon has been neglected though in a minute I'll mention maybe it's not so much neglect he actually was in an interview yesterday with CNN and he noted here in quotes I'm greatly disappointed that more has not been done to secure my release especially as the four-year anniversary of my arrest is coming up I was arrested for a crime that never occurred 
And he said all this in the from a penal colony, which sounds fun, in a remote part of Russia, probably Siberia. It's usually the fitting one. And he said, I don't understand why I'm still sitting here. Now, I think everyone, when they just hear this at face value, would say, look, like this is a veteran. This is a guy who's been over their way longer. Did they go for Brittany Griner because of the attention and the media outrage of her being there? Did she just get the spotlight and had the luxury of that spotlight? Maybe, maybe, and I can entertain that. But I think the situation is different, and I can kind of understand why they got Griner. Because first, I was reading an article a few weeks ago that discussed how Moscow just doesn't even want to negotiate the release of Waylon and is very firm on keeping him there no matter what. The difference in the Griner case is that they actually were willing to make a trade. And so I guess when you're dealing with Russia, you kind of have to work where you can. You have to deal with what the, what the cards are that are dealt with you, right? And maybe, I mean, this is just speculation, but maybe this is because the Kremlin views Whalen's actions as being worse or more dangerous to the regime than bringing a vape pen, right? And that would make sense to me, at least, because this is a guy that they think is spying. He is ex-military. Like, he kind of fits the thing of, like, political prisoner we don't want to let go. Also, like, to kind of back that up, a Biden administration official did note in quotes here, this was not a situation where we had a choice of what American to bring home. It was a choice between bringing home one particular American, Brittany Griner, or bringing home none. And I, I think that's that's probably accurate. And, you know, at first, when, when I first saw this story, I'm like, God, they couldn't bring Waylon home. They let Bowed out for this. But look, it's an American who's home. Waylon was not going anywhere to begin with. So you're going to have people that are going to complain about it and say, why didn't you get Waylon? But I just asked those people, okay, well, would you rather no one? So she's home. Uh, Biden met with her wife, I think it was yesterday. And it's nice to see. It's nice to see. It's a, It's good to see that she was clearly used as a political football during all this invasion of Ukraine BS. And finally she's home. God, I can't even imagine probably the nightmare she will have, but at least she's out of there. Next, I want to talk about a story that I first thought was kind of uh, a farce, but actually it's kind of disturbing. And it's an interesting report coming out of Germany. And it involves a small group of far-right extremists who were basically planning an old-fashioned coup d'etat, you know? The things we always talk about. And it involved like 25 people. So I guess you could say it was kind of a sad coup attempt. But I guess the scope of people who knew what was happening and just the, the fact that this was actually going to happen does show that there's rising extremism in, Ger in, in Germany, generally speaking. And anyways, The Economist has a good piece on this. And it reads here in uh, quotes here. At the crack of dawn on December 7th, some 3,000 police and special forces officers carried out raids in 11 states across Germany to arrest 25 suspected members of a group that was allegedly planning to topple the deep state. The plotters they believe are, are ruling the country. And first off, I just have to say, it's kind of crazy how the whole deep state thing has really just taken off. Like, you could pretty much go to any Western country now, and the far-right extremists all pretty much have the same talking points, which is sort of insane when you think about it. It's kind of a unified global movement against this type of stuff. And the article continues to say in quotes here, the prosecutor's office said that those arrested aimed to overthrow the existing state system and replace it with their own form of state of which fundamental features are already prepared. And they actually did have a lot of preparation and they even had the names of people they were going to put in. Fun, right? Like really, really nice situation to end the week on. And from my understanding, they kind of wanted to make another Reich type of situation. 
From the details I've read, the movement wanted to install this guy named Prince Heinrich the 13th of Rus. And from my understanding, he's this 71-year-old descendant of a family that ruled a certain principality in eastern Germany until 1918. And this prince guy, obviously, if you if you really look into his views, he's been kind of isolated and neglected by his family. The Rus family wants basically nothing to do with him because he's an anti-Semite, a racist, and is a conspiracy peddler, kind of a, you know, globalist elite kind of QAnon adjacent type of views where all these people end. And he basically believes that the current German government is illegitimate and should be replaced with the First Reich. So not the third one, like the Nazi one, but the First Reich from like the late 1800s, I believe it was. And they also wanted to coordinate with the Russian government and they unveiled plots of storming the Bundestag, which is kind of the parliament building in Germany. So the whole thing is sort of insane when you really <laughs> when you really think about it. And of course, the questions are like, how would they actually do this? Was the military behind them? I don't think the military was, was behind them, by the way, but still, it's just kind of insane. Now, it's interesting, though, because even though the group has been exposed and failed, obviously thousands of ra people raiding different sections of the country, it does show there's quite a network there. And they did have, again, like I said, the names of people they actually wanted to install in this new Reich. And... There was, for example, even a judge in Berlin who was a former member of parliament for the far-right Alternative for Germany party was going to be justice minister in the planned New Reich. So they had names. They had the receipts. They were definitely moving in on this. And like I said, when I first saw this report, I kind of laughed it off and was thinking this looked like kind of a pathetic group of dudes trying to overthrow the government with just not enough support. But once you read into it and think more about it, it kind of is a serious issue because... From my understanding, the German population is pretty naive to the extremism that is kind of happening on the far right in almost like every Western country right now. And for example, Americans are quite aware now of like the QAnon type of stuff, right? Of course, Trump was a leader who kind of gave it a platform. So that definitely helps. But also, you know, the storming of the Capitol and all the craziness in the U.S. Like most Americans are aware that there's a fringe in this country that is dangerous and does have a voice and does have power. But Germans, on the other hand, I was reading in I was reading in um, the Reuters, I believe it was. They seem to be convinced that these similar conspiracies and violent ideas are relegated to such a small population that it's not worth worrying about. And I think this attempted coup or whatever you want to call it shows us that this is actually a growing issue. Like domestic extremism is a serious issue. And there's an Economist article that notes in quotes here, over the past three years, uh, Thomas Haldenwang, the head of Germany's domestic intelligence agency, has frequently called right-wing extremists the biggest threat to Germany's democracy. Sounds familiar. Anyways, it continues, some commentators have dismissed such people as crackpots on the fringe of society, but Mr. Haldenwang insists that they are a real and present danger. The article goes on to note here, it believes that around 34,000 right-wing extremists are at large, of whom it deems 13,500 to be potentially violent. In 2021, right-wing extremists committed 20,000 criminal offenses, or 55 a day, including physical attacks on foreigners, a little lower than in the previous year, but still very high. And, you know, there's been other times in the last hundred years we've seen trends sort of like this, and it never ends well, but that's a huge number for a country, even if it's, you know, it's not in the millions or something, but... These are the like extremist extremists. I'm sure there's also sympathizers, etc. And I think this is a sign that 
a lot of this extremism we see brewing in the United States and the growing racism and anti-Semitism mixed with this conspiratorial thinking is not just in the United States. It's a global phenomenon that's growing in strength. And this isn't my original quote or thought, but I forget who said it. I think it was someone on the bulwark, but someone joked that it's funny how the Steve Bannons and the Alex Joneses and the Stephen Millers are so anti-globalist, so anti-globalization, when in reality they actually have created global networks of these fringe and dangerous views. I mean, you always hear about Steve Bannon was actually going around like Italy and Austria and Spain and France, like pretty much trying to unify all these right-wing movements. And then he goes and says, I'm not a globalist. It's like, dude, you're creating a global kind of alt-right fascist type of ideology. And yeah, it's globalist. <laughs> there is literally a global movement of these people. And I think this threat in Germany seems very similar to what we've seen in the U.S. And social media has made it easier. And there's these networks. Things are growing. You don't have to meet each other anymore to carry this stuff out. And I think we'll have to keep making this topic front and center because Again, like I said, there's parallels to other times over the last hundred years, and it doesn't end well, and these people need to be stopped because, yeah. Now, the one thing I, I will say is that I think meeting online and doing all these online networks does create weaker ties than in the past when you actually had people really working together and meeting and meeting in old you know dining halls and stuff. It's definitely different, but it's still disturbing nonetheless. And also, it's just... A through line when you know the United States, like the FBI has warned that domestic extremism is one of the most pressing threats. And then you see Germany having the same issue. What was it? Two days ago, I talked about how the DHS has also said that, you know, random attacks and extremism are a growing issue in the US. And yeah, I don't like this like decentralized, almost anarchism that we're seeing. Speaking though, moving on of another threat to democracy on pretty much the other side of the world, Peru is having a lot of chaos as well, which is actually not super new for them. But anyways, the current president of Peru, I touched on this on yesterday's episode, was removed from office as president. And this is Pedro Castillo, and he was removed from office as president by Congress just basically hours after he tried down to shut the le- or sorry, tried to shut down the legislature. And from my understanding, this guy quite literally wanted to consolidate power and get rid of the legislature which obviously is kind of an important part in a democracy or Republican system. And before we go into the details, though, I do want to refresh the listeners on who this guy is and why he became president and the situation in Peru, because if you know anything about Peruvian politics, they, they go through a lot of leaders, like way more than even European ones or even more than what's it called, Israel and stuff. And so Peru has had four presidents in less than two years, to, to make that note. And in late 2020, and, and actually, I, I should also add that it's not really new. For the last, like, 30 years, they've had a lot of presidents. But four in two years is pretty good. So in late 2020, for example, Peru's Congress voted to get rid of uh, President Martin Biscata over corruption, I guess. And Biscata went without any issues and... Then they put in Manuel Merino, who was the head of Congress, and then he was sworn into, into the presidency because they have congressional succession laws that happen if, if, you know, the president's removed. And following his promotion to president, people were pissed off in the streets of Lima and other big cities in Peru because 
Basically, they said Marino's presidency wasn't legitimate because he wasn't actually elected into power. And they said this was a this was an abuse of congressional powers, right? And do remember that because I think down the road when we hear that Castillo wanted to get rid of Congress, now he's a far leftist, and I think he didn't like the fact that there were these succession laws. And so I think he wanted to get rid of Congress for that. But of course, it was dangerous. But anyways, many people felt, again, that Marino was illegitimate. And he stepped down, and within a week, Peru had... Had, had, had many presidents, right? And then what happens next is that Francisco Sagasti followed Manuel Marino due to, again, constitutional succession, which, again, people were not very happy. He lasted like eight months or so. And then finally they held an election. And Pedro Castillo, the guy I've been talking about that's made the headlines the last couple of days, he was finally elected as president. He was elected. He went against Fujimoto's um, daughter, I believe it was, who is quite corrupt and is really hated by the population, to be honest. He beat her in a very close election, becomes the president, and here we are. But there is really nothing new here, hearing about these stories, because Peru just seems to have an issue with holding on to presidents or just really having a legitimate order here. Because over the last century, multiple, I mean, probably closer to 10 than five presidents have ended up in prison or jail before they left office. The New York Times even has an article from, I think it was 2017, called Does Peru Need a Special Prison Just for Ex-Presidents? And according to this article, in quotes, four of its former presidents are in jail or fugitives from justice to human rights, crimes, or corruption. A world record, probably, but hardly one to celebrate. Sorry, I said more than 10. It's actually closer to five. But anyways, yeah, that's a crazy number, right? And just to paint a picture of what some of these characters that have ended up in prison have done. You had Alberto uh, Fujimoto, Fujimori, who ran Peru from 1990 to 2000 as basically a dictator. He was an autocrat. And he was sentenced in 2009 to 25 years in jail for a lot of human rights violations in the fight against the Shining Path. Guerrillas that were, I mean, they did a lot of harm on Peru as well. But Fujimori, of course, came down with an iron fist. He wasn't democratically elected. He basically used the military to take power. And it was a very dark time in Peru. But he was later, of course, not convicted of doing anything with that. It was embezzlement. <laughs> they always seem to get him for these other side things. But so he's in prison. His daughter keeps running, which people wonder why she keeps losing elections. Maybe it's because people don't want to go back to someone with that last name. That's also probably why Castillo won in the first place is because he was running against her for the left. Anyways, another former president, Alejandro Toledo, he served from 2001 to 2006, and he brought democracy back after Mr. Fujimori, you know, had his issues. And Toledo is currently fighting extradition to Peru. He is, I believe, in Silicon Valley in California, and he is charged with taking $20 million in kickbacks from the Brazilian construction giant Odebrecht. And we have to remember that that's that car wash scandal that happened. It came out in the Panama Papers. And pretty much, pretty much every leader in South America was involved in this big payment scheme. And so Toledo is, yeah, fighting extradition. And then, of course, you have the former Peruvian president, Alan Garcia. And he died in, sorry, he died after shooting himself as police arrived at his home to arrest him over bribery allegations. And he was a former president as well. But yeah, it's not good when you kill yourself when the police are on their way to take you to prison. And... 
I actually think that one darkly sums up fairly well all the issues with presidents in Peru. Corrupt shoots himself on the way to prison. And things just are not always that fun in Peru with leaders. But anyways, that little trip down memory lane aside, let's go back to Castillo because it is kind of fascinating. So in a sense, like the last topic, the last segment I did, this is another example of a coup, albeit this one was less blatant and physical and more of a soft coup or an attempt at systemic coup, a legal coup. I don't know what you would really call it, but it was more on the process than just like killing people. And in a sense, history kind of tried to repeat itself at least because don't you remember I mentioned earlier on Alberto Fujimori, Peru's autocratic ruler, and he used force to basically use tanks to storm Congress and take over the country for 10 years. It seems like Castillo was trying to do the same, but he was trying to take over the process instead of like physical tanks. But from my understanding, he was kind of a bumbling idiot who was not good at doing these type of schemes. There's an article that writes here in quotes, on December 7th, he announced that he would close Congress, convene a new one with powers to write a new constitution and reorganize the judiciary and the prosecutor's office. Reorganizing the judiciary is a fun word, isn't it? There's other words I would probably use other than reorganizing, but yeah, I mean, he basically wanted to like hollow out the institutions and the checks on the president. And again, I do think in Peru, there's kind of an irritation by the public about how Congress has so much power and they have these constitutional succession laws. And so, yeah, it sounded like Castillo wanted to create a new constitution and just change the way legislation is made in the country. And it wasn't that popular. And Castillo is interesting because he was a rural school teacher and he was definitely far left. And the issue is I think he had no political experience and was just from every under, from every article I've read, he was very unfit for office. Because, for example, during his 16 months in power, he struggled to get practically anything done. And he couldn't even really bring good people around him. Like in the words of Trump, he wasn't bringing in the best and the brightest. And The Economist writes here, He got through five cabinets and around 80 ministers. They came and went almost weekly, many of them as unqualified as the president himself. According to the chief prosecutor, he and several members of his family corruptly conspired to award public contracts as well. It's always too bad when you have kind of a leftist school teacher who claims to be a man of the people who's just doing the same thing all over again. And pretty much it just sounds like this was this move to <laughs> erode Congress and get more power for the president was just a desperate gamble by a guy who really didn't understand what he was doing. And I guess the good news is that he lacked support from the armed forces, from the military, from the upper echelon of society. So he couldn't actually do it because, you know, when Fujimori did it, he did have support from the armed forces and he did it. And I guess the irony here is that because Castillo tried to do this, he actually helped his own downfall because apparently Congress had been trying to impeach him for a long time over the fact that he was just completely morally unfit to be in office. And by doing all of this, he actually gave them the case to get rid of him. And from my understanding, the left was kind of protecting him for the 16 months he was there. So every time they held a, a vote to impeach him, it never passed. Then he tries this <laughs> stupid gesture and actually goes. So again, this guy was incompetent, not smart. And it's fitting that he ended 
like this. Again, I mean, it's something to moderately celebrate that the coup failed, right? The new president, she is also a leftist, but at least she seems more competent and knows what she's doing. And I guess this brings up questions about whether this really is good news or not, because it shows that the country wasn't ready for this type of autocracy, this kind of rebellion against democracy. But it also shows like a troubling just trend of leadership in Peru. And it's really hard to get things done when you have a government that keeps coming and going and extreme pendulum shifts every, you know, I mean, the average, the average leader over the last two years has been there for like half a year. And, I, and some haven't even been there for two days. So it's kind of hard to get things done. And they always say, you know, that people keep getting promoted until they reach their final level of incompetence. And if you think about that for this, Castillo did pretty well, rural school teacher to president. I mean, he got promoted up to the top echelon here. But I guess you have to be glad that he was incompetent in leading this coup, or whatever you want to call it, because it failed. And usually a smarter person, it might not have failed. And yeah, we're going to have to keep watching Peru because, I mean, I would not be entirely surprised if there's a new president again fairly soon. I don't really hope on that because I want things to get done, but you just never know. So anyways, lots of democratic issues, I guess, around the world that we're seeing. And uh, I mean, I, at least in the U.S., you know, Warnock beat Herschel Walker and the midterms weren't great for the crazies, but around the world, things are not going as well. So anyways, I want you guys to have just a great weekend. Stay safe and sane. We got a big storm coming here from what I've heard. Will it come to fruition? We'll have to see. But anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, yeah, 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 all that jazz. So take care. Ciao. We'll see you Monday.